Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 25. Episode 25 is a continuation of episode 24, where we began an intense review of the interrogation of Lee Harvey Oswald. In episode 24, you heard the testimony of Will Fritz, the head of the Homicide Bureau for the Dallas Police Department. Now, in this episode, we're going to review the reports that were turned in by the FBI, the Secret Service, and the Postal Inspection Service. I don't want to sway you, but I will say, pay special attention to what's in the Secret Service reports and the Postal Inspection Report. The FBI reports are good, too. If you like digging for gold, these very tedious discussions, which are, again, almost about an hour, have about three or four things in them that really make a difference. You'll also hear the suspect lie on multiple occasions. No doubt, for most people, that has an impact on what they think in regards to his ultimate involvement in what happened on that day. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 25. We're going to start today by looking at the various statements made by the FBI agents about the interrogation. Those statements were labeled number one through number five. I'm sure they were made as a single combined submission of all the FBI officers present at a given meeting. An individual report for each individual interrogation, rather than the submission of separate reports by each of the officers. Obviously, that avoids any conflict in what the individual officers might have reported separately. Let's go through each one of the five reports. Take notes if you can. Remember, you are the jury here. I'll read this in the first person. Captain Fritz had been previously interviewing Lee Harvey Oswald for an undetermined period of time. Both agents identified themselves to Oswald and advised him they were law enforcement officers and anything he said could be used against him. Oswald, at this time, adopted a violent attitude toward the FBI and both agents and made many uncomplimentary remarks about the FBI. Oswald requested that Captain Fritz remove the cuffs from him, it being noted that Oswald was handcuffed with his hands behind him. Captain Fritz had one of his detectives remove the handcuffs and handcuff Oswald with his hands in front of him. Captain Frist asked Oswald if he ever owned a rifle, and Oswald stated that he had observed a Mr. Truly, a supervisor at the Texas School Book Depository, on November 20th, 1963, display a rifle to some individuals in his office on the first floor of the Texas School Book Depository, but denied ever owning a rifle himself. Oswald stated that he had never been in Mexico except to Tijuana on one occasion. However, he admitted to Captain Fritz to having resided in the Soviet Union for three years, 
where he has many friends and relatives of his wife. Oswald also admitted that he was the secretary for the Fair Play for Cuba committee in New Orleans, Louisiana, a few months ago. Oswald stated that the Fair Play for Cuba committee has its headquarters in New York City. Oswald admitted to having received an award for marksmanship while a member of the U.S. Marine Corps. He further admitted that he was living at 1026 North Beckley in Dallas, Texas, under the name of O.H. Lee. Oswald admitted that he was present in the Texas School Book Depository on November 22, 1963, where he had been employed since October 15, 1963. Oswald stated that as a laborer, he has access to the entire building, which has offices on the first and second floors and storage on the third, fourth, as well as the fifth and sixth floors. Oswald stated that he went to lunch at approximately noon, and he claimed he ate his lunch on the first floor in the lunchroom. However, he went to the second floor where the Coca-Cola machine was located and obtained a bottle of Coca-Cola for his lunch. Oswald claimed to be on the first floor when President John F. Kennedy passed this building. After hearing what had happened, he said that, because of all the confusion, there would be no work performed that afternoon, so he decided to go home. Oswald stated he then went home by bus and changed his clothes and went to a movie. Oswald admitted to carrying a pistol with him to this movie, stating he did this because he felt like it, giving no other reason. Oswald further admitted attempting to fight the Dallas police officers who arrested him in this movie theater when he received a cut and a bump. Oswald frantically denied shooting Dallas police officer Tippett or shooting President John F. Kennedy. The interview was concluded at 4.05 p.m. when Oswald was removed for a lineup. Okay, now let's pivot to the FBI report number two. Lee Harvey Oswald was interviewed in the offices of the Dallas Police Department, where he was advised that he did not have to make any statement. Any statement he made could be used against him in court and of his right to an attorney. He was requested to furnish descriptive and biographical data concerning himself. The following was obtained from his responses and examination of contents of his wallet. Oswald declined to explain his possession of a photograph of a selective service card in the name of Alec James Heidel. When the interview had been substantially completed and Oswald was asked as to his present employment, he stated that he thought an interview to obtain descriptive information was too prolonged and that he declined to be interviewed by any other officers previously and did not desire to be interviewed by this agent. He remarked, I know your tactics. There is a similar agency in Russia. You are using the soft touch, and, of course, the procedure in Russia would be quite different. Oswald was advised that questions were intended to obtain his complete physical description and background. Upon repetition of the question to his present employment, he furnished the same without further discussion. He then gave a description of himself as a white male, born October 18, 1939, in New Orleans, Louisiana. He was 5 feet 9 inches tall, 140 pounds. He had medium brown hair. He wore it medium length, and he needs a haircut.
His eyes were blue-gray. He had no tattoos or permanent scars. His mother was Marguerite Oswald. He did not know her address, but that she lived in Arlington, Texas, and she was a practical nurse. Lee had not seen her for about one year. His father was Robert Lee Oswald, who had been deceased and died on August 31, 1939, in New Orleans. His wife was Marina, and they had two infant children. He had two brothers. The first was John Oswald, whom Lee Harvey Oswald believed lived in Fort Worth, Texas as his last known address, but it was about five or six years prior and that he would be about 30 years of age. He works with pharmaceuticals, but he's not a graduate pharmacist. He has a second brother, Robert Oswald, that he actually knew the address of, 7313 Davenport in Fort Worth, Texas. His wife's name was Vada. They had two small children, and he worked for a brick company that Oswald believed was the Acme Brick Company. Oswald, at the moment, was wearing black trousers, brown salt-and-pepper long-sleeve shirt, and he was bareheaded. With Alec James Hadell, also with an identification number on it, they also listed the contents of his wallet, and I won't go into that in a lot of detail, but there was a plethora of items inside of his wallet. He had a selective service card, a social security card. They even listed his social security and selective service numbers, pictures of his wife and daughter. He had a Dallas Public Library card, and interestingly enough, a U.S. Forces Japan ID card, ostensibly related to his time he spent in the military in Japan a certificate of service in the armed forces reflecting his honorable service in the U.S. Marine Corps, his Fair Play for Cuba card, and a general business card for the Fair Play for Cuba committee that was headquartered in New York. And to top it off, he had $13 in currency in his pocket, a single five and eight ones. In the FBI report number three, Lee Harvey Oswald was interviewed at the Homicide and Robbery Bureau by Will Fritz again in the presence of Special Agent James Bukout. The other FBI agents were not there in this particular interview session. Oswald was advised of the identity and official capacity of the said agent and the fact that he did not have to make any statement, that any statement he did make could be used in a court of law against him, and that any statement made must be free and voluntary and that he had the right to consult with an attorney. Oswald stated that he did not own any rifle. He advised that he saw a rifle the day before yesterday at the Texas School Book Depository, which Mr. Truly and two other gentlemen had in their possession and were looking at. Oswald stated that on November 22, 1963, at the time of the search of the Texas School Book Depository building by Dallas police officers, he was on the second floor of the said building, having just purchased a Coca-Cola from the soft drink machine, at which time a police officer came into the room with pistol drawn and asked him if he worked there. Mr. Truly was present and verified that he was an employee, and the police officer thereafter left the room and continued through the building. Oswald stated that he took this Coke down to the first floor and stood around and had lunch in the employee's lunchroom. He thereafter went outside and stood around for five or ten minutes with foreman Bill Shelley and thereafter went home. 
He stated that he left work because, in his opinion, based upon remarks of Bill Shelley, he did not believe that there was going to be any more work that day due to the confusion in the building. He stated after arriving at his residence, then he went to a movie where he was subsequently apprehended by the Dallas Police Department. Oswald stated that his hours of work at the Texas School Book Depository are from 8 a.m. to 4.45 p.m., but that he is not required to punch a time clock. His usual place of work in the building is on the first floor. However, he frequently is required to go to the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh floors of the building in order to get books, and this was true on November 22, 1963. And he had been on all of the floors in the performance of his duties on November 22, 1963. All right, now we'll pivot to FBI report number four. Only James Bookout was in attendance during this particular interrogation session, but there was others, including T.J. Nully from the U.S. Secret Service, David B. Grant from the Secret Service, Robert I. Nash from the United States Marshal's Office, and detectives Billy L. Senkel and Faye M. Turner of the Homicide and Robbery Bureau of the Dallas Police Department. Following his departure from the Texas School Book Depository, he boarded a city bus to his residence and obtained transfer upon departure from the bus. He stated that officers at the time of arresting him took his transfer out of his pocket. Oswald advised that he had only one post office box, which was at Dallas, Texas. He denied bringing any package to work on the morning of November 22, 1963. He stated that he was not in the process of fixing up his apartment, and he denied telling Wesley Frazier that the purpose of his visit to Irving, Texas, on the night of November 21, 1963, was to obtain some curtain rods from Mrs. Ruth Payne. Oswald stated that it was not exactly true, as recently stated by him, that he rode a bus from his place of employment to his residence on November 22, 1963. He stated, actually, he did board a city bus at his place of employment, but that, after a block or two, due to traffic congestion, he left the bus and rode a city cab to his apartment on North Beckley. He recalled that, at the time of getting into the cab, some lady looked in and asked the driver to call her a cab. He stated that he might have made some remarks to the cab driver merely for the purpose of passing the time of day at that time. He recalled that his fare was approximately 85 cents. He stated that after arriving at his apartment, he changed his shirt and trousers because they were dirty. He described his dirty clothes as being a reddish-colored long-sleeve shirt with button-down collar and gray-colored trousers. He indicated that he had placed these articles of clothing in the lower drawer of his dresser. Oswald stated that on November 22, 1963, he had eaten lunch in the lunchroom at the Texas School Book Depository alone, but recalled possibly two Negro employees walking through the room during this period. He stated possibly one of these employees was called Junior, and the other was a short individual whose name he could not recall, but whom he would be able to recognize. He stated that his lunch had consisted of a cheese sandwich and an apple, which he had obtained at Miss Ruth Payne's residence in Irving upon his leaving for work that morning. 
Oswald stated that Mrs. Payne receives no pay for keeping his wife and children at her residence. He stated that their presence in Mrs. Payne's residence is a good arrangement for her because of her language interest, indicating that his wife speaks Russian and Mrs. Payne is interested in the Russian language. Oswald denied having kept a rifle in Mrs. Payne's garage at Irving, Texas, but stated that he did have certain articles stored in her garage consisting of two sea bags, a couple of suitcases, and several boxes of kitchen articles, and also kept his clothes at Mrs. Payne's residence. He stated that all of the articles in Mrs. Payne's garage had been brought there about September 1963 from New Orleans, Louisiana. Oswald stated that he had no visitors at his apartment on North Beckley. Oswald stated that he has no receipts for purchase of any guns and has never ordered any guns and does not own a rifle, nor has he ever possessed a rifle. Oswald denied that he is a member of the Communist Party. Oswald stated that he purchased a pistol, which was taken off him by police officers November 22, 1963, about six months ago. He declined to state where he had purchased it. Oswald stated that he arrived about July 1962 from USSR and was interviewed by the FBI at Fort Worth, Texas. He stated that he felt they overstepped their bounds and had used various tactics in interviewing him. He further complained that on interview of Ruth Payne by the FBI regarding his wife, that he felt that his wife was intimidated. Oswald stated that he desired to contact attorney Apt, New York City, indicating that Apt was the attorney who had defended the Smith Act case about 1949 or 50. He stated that he does not know attorney Apt personally. Captain Fritz advised Oswald that arrangement would be immediately made whereby he could call attorney Apt. Oswald stated that prior to coming to Dallas from New Orleans, he had resided at a furnished apartment at 4706 Magazine Street in New Orleans. While in New Orleans, he had been employed by William B. Riley Company, 640 Magazine Street, New Orleans. Oswald stated that he has nothing against President John F. Kennedy personally. However, in view of the present charges against him, he did not desire to discuss this phase further. Oswald stated that he would not agree to take a polygraph examination without the advice of counsel. He added that in the past, he has refused to take polygraph examinations. Oswald stated that he is a member of the American Civil Liberties Union and added that Mrs. Ruth Payne was also a member of SAME. With regard to Selective Service Card in the possession of Oswald, bearing the photograph of Oswald and the name of Alec James Heidel, Oswald admitted that he carried this Selective Service Card, but declined to state that he wrote the signature of Alec J. Heidel appearing on same. He further declined to state the purpose of carrying same or any use he has made of same. Oswald stated that an address book in his possession contains the names of various Russian immigrants residing in Dallas, Texas, whom he has visited with. 
Oswald denied shooting President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, and added that he did not know that Governor John Connolly had been shot and denied any knowledge concerning this incident. All right, now we'll pivot to the last and final FBI report, report number five. Again, only Agent Bookout from the FBI was in attendance with Captain Fritz, and it was at 6.35 p.m. Captain J.W. Fritz exhibited to Lee Harvey Oswald a photograph which had been obtained by the Dallas Police Department in a search by search warrant of the garage at the residence of Mrs. Ruth Payne, located at Irving, Texas, which photograph reflects Oswald holding a rifle and wearing a holstered pistol. Oswald was asked if this was a photograph of himself. Oswald stated that he would not discuss the photograph without advice of an attorney. He stated that the head of the individual in the photograph could be his, but that it was entirely possible that the police department had superimposed this part of the photograph over the body of someone else. He pointed out that numerous news media had snapped his photograph during the day and the possibility existed that the police had doctored up this photograph. Oswald denied that he had purchased any rifle from Klein's store in Chicago, Illinois. Oswald complained of a lineup wherein he had not been granted a request to put a jacket similar to those worn by some of the other individuals in the lineup. All right, we're going to pivot away now from the FBI reports, and we're going to walk through the reports of Thomas J. Kelly, a U.S. Secret Service agent. At about 10.30 a.m., November 23, 1963, I attended my first interview with Oswald. Present during the interview at the Homicide Division, Dallas Police Department, were Special Agent Jim Bookout from the FBI, Captain Will Fritz, Homicide Division, Dallas Police Department, U.S. Marshal Robert Nash, Special Agent David Grant, and Special Agent in Charge Sorrells, and Officers Boyd and Hall of Captain Fritz's detail. The interview was not recorded. Mr. Sorrells and my presence was as observers since Oswald was being held for murder and his custody and interrogation at that time was the responsibility of the Dallas Police Department. In response to questions put by Captain Fritz, Oswald said that immediately after having left the building where he worked, he went by bus to the theater where he was arrested that when he got on the bus, he secured a transfer and therefore transferred to other buses to get to this destination. He denied that he brought a package to work on that day, and he denied that he had ever had conversation about curtain rods with a boy named Wesley, who drove him to his employment. Fritz asked him if he had ridden a taxi that day, and Oswald then changed his story and said that when he got on the bus, he found it was going too slow, and after two blocks, he got off the bus and took a cab to his home, that he passed the time with a cab driver, and that the cab driver had told him that the president was shot. He paid a cab fare of 85 cents. In response to questions, he stated that this was the first time he had ever ridden in a cab, since a bus was always available. He said he went home, changed his trousers and shirt, put his shirt in a drawer, this was a red shirt, 
and he put it in with his dirty clothes. He described the shirt as having a button-down collar and of reddish color. The trousers were gray-colored. He said he ate his lunch with the colored boys who worked with him. He described one of them as Junior, a colored boy, and the other was a little short Negro boy. He said his lunch consisted of cheese, fruit, and apples, and was the only package he had with him when he went to work. He stated that Mrs. Payne practices Russian by having his wife live with her. He denied that he had ever owned a rifle. He said that he does not know Mr. Payne very well, but that Payne usually comes by the place where his wife was living with Mrs. Payne on Friday or Wednesday. He stated that Mr. Payne has a car, and Mrs. Payne has had two cars. He said, in response to questions by Captain Fritz, that two sea bags with some other packages containing his personal belongings and that he brought those back from New Orleans with him sometime in September. He stated that his brother Robert lived at 7313 Davenport Street, Fort Worth, and that the Paynes were his closest friends in town. He denied that he had ever joined the Communist Party, that he never had a Communist card. He did belong to the American Civil Liberties Union and paid $5 a year dues. He stated that he had bought the pistol that was found in his possession when he was arrested about seven months ago. He refused to answer any questions concerning the pistol or a gun until he talked to a lawyer. Oswald stated that, at various times, he had been thoroughly interrogated by the FBI, that they had used all the usual interrogation practices and all their standard operating procedure, that he was very familiar with interrogation, and he had no intention of answering any questions concerning any shooting, that he knew he did not have to answer them, and that he would not answer any questions until he had been given counsel. He stated that the FBI had used their hard and soft approach to him. They used the buddy system, that he was familiar with all types of questioning and had no intention of making any statement. He said that in the past three weeks, when the FBI had talked to his wife, they were abusive and impolite, that they had frightened his wife and he considered their activities obnoxious. He stated that he wanted to contact a Mr. Apt a New York lawyer whom he did not know, but who had defended the Smith Act victims in 1949 or 1950 in connection with a conspiracy against the government, and that Apt would understand what this case was all about and that he would give him an excellent defense. He stated in returning a question about his former address that he lived at 4907 Magazine Street in New Orleans at one time and worked for the William Riley Company, that he was arrested in New Orleans for disturbing the peace and paid a $10 fine while he was demonstrating for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and that they were released while he was fined. Upon questioning by Captain Fritz, he said, I have no views on the president. My wife and I like the president's family. They are interesting people. I have my own views on the president's national policy. I have a right to express my views, but because of the charges, I do not think I should comment further. Oswald said, I am not a malcontent. Nothing irritated me about the president. 
He said that during 1962, he was interviewed by the FBI and that he, at that time, refused to take a polygraph and that he did not intend to take a polygraph test for the Dallas police. At this time, Captain Fritz showed a selective service card that was taken out of his wallet, which bore the name of Alex Heidel. Oswald refused to discuss this after being asked for an explanation of it, both by Fritz and by James Bookout, the FBI agent. I asked him if he viewed the parade, and he said he had not. I then asked him if he had shot the president, and he said he had not. I asked him if he had shot Governor Conley, and he said he had not. He did not intend to answer further questions without counsel, and that if he could not get apt, then he would hope that the Civil Liberties Union would give him an attorney to represent him. At that point, Captain Fritz terminated the interview at about 11.30 a.m. Okay, now let's pivot to the second interview that Thomas J. Kelly attended it was at 12.35 p.m. At about 12.35 p.m., November 23, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswell was interviewed in the office of Captain Will Fritz of the Homicide Division, Dallas Police Department. Among those present at this interview were Inspector Kelly, Captain Fritz, Detectives Senkel and Tiernan of the Homicide Division, and Special Agent James Bookout of the FBI. Captain Fritz conducted the interview, which was concerned mostly with Oswald's places of residences in Dallas, and was an attempt to ascertain where the bulk of Oswald's belongings were located in Dallas. As a result of the interview, Oswald furnished information to Captain Fritz that most of his personal effects, including a sea bag, were in the garage at the address of Mrs. Payne at 2515 West 5th Street in Irving, Texas. The interview was concluded about 1.10 p.m., and immediately thereafter, members of the Homicide Division secured a search warrant and recovered Oswell's effects from the home of Mrs. Payne. Found among the effects were two different poses in snapshot-type photographs taken of Oswell holding a rifle in one hand and holding up a copy of a paper called The Militant and The Worker in the other hand. Oswald was wearing a revolver in a holster on his right side. This photograph was enlarged by the Dallas Police Laboratories and was used as a basis of additional questioning of Oswald at approximately 6 o'clock p.m. that same evening. On November 23, 1963, at 6 o'clock p.m., in the office of Captain Fritz, Homicide Division, Dallas Police Department, I was present at an interview with Oswald. Also present were Captain Fritz, the FBI agent Jim Bookout, and four officers from the Homicide Division. This interview was conducted with Oswald for the purpose of displaying to him the blow-up of photographs showing him holding a rifle and a pistol, which were seized as a result of the search warrant for the garage of Mrs. Payne at 2515 West 5th Street, Irving, Texas. When the photographs were presented to Oswald, he sneered at them, saying that they were fake photographs, that he had been photographed a number of times the day before by the police, and apparently after they photographed him, they superimposed on the photographs a rifle and put a gun in his pocket. 
He got into a long argument with Captain Fritz about his knowledge of photography and asked Fritz a number of times whether the smaller photograph was made from the larger or whether the larger photograph was made from the smaller. He said at the proper time he would show that the photographs were fakes. Fritz told him that the smaller photograph was taken from his effects at the garage. Oswald became arrogant and refused to answer any further questions concerning the photographs and would not identify the photographs as being a photograph of himself. Captain Fritz displayed great patience and tenacity in attempting to secure from Oswald the location of what apparently is the backyard of that address at which Oswald formerly lived, but it was apparent that Oswald though slightly shaken by the evidence, had no intention of furnishing any information. The interview was terminated at about 7.15 p.m. Now we'll pivot to preliminary special Dallas report number three by the U.S. Secret Service officer, Chief Inspector Kelly. This covers the third interview with Oswald and circumstances immediately following his murder. This interview started at approximately 9.30 a.m. on Sunday, November 24, 1963. The interview was conducted in the offices of Captain Will Fritz of the Homicide Bureau, Dallas Police. Present at that interview, in addition to Oswald, were Captain Fritz, Postal Inspector Holmes, Special Agent in Charge Sorrells, Inspector Kelly, and four members of the Homicide Squad. The interview had just begun when I arrived, and Captain Fritz was, again, requesting Oswald to identify the place where the photograph of him holding the gun was taken. Captain Fritz indicated that it would save the police a great deal of time if he would tell them where the place was located. Oswald refused to discuss the matter. Captain Fritz asked, are you a communist? Oswald answered, no, I am a Marxist, but I am not a Marxist-Leninist. Captain Fritz asked him what the difference was, and Oswald said it would take a long time to explain it to him. Oswald said that he had become interested in the Fair Play for Cuba committee while he was in New Orleans, that he wrote to the committee's headquarters in New York and received some committee literature in a letter signed by Alex Heidel. He stated that he began to distribute that literature in New Orleans, and it was at that time, and that he had got into an altercation with a group, and he was arrested. He said his opinions concerning fair play are well known. They appeared on the Bell Stuckey television program in New Orleans on a number of occasions and was interviewed by the local press often. He denies knowing or ever seeing Heidel in New Orleans said he believed in all of the tenets of the Fair Play for Cuba and the things which the Fair Play for Cuba committee stood for, which was free intercourse with Cuba and freedom for tourists of both countries to travel within each other's borders. Among other things, Oswald said that Cuba should have full diplomatic relationship with the United States. I asked him if he thought that the president's assassination would have any effect on the Fair Play for Cuba committee. He said there would be no change in the attitude of the American people toward Cuba with President Johnson becoming president, because they both belong to the same political party, and the one would follow pretty generally the policies of the other. He stated that he is an avid reader of Russian literature, whether it is communistic or not, that he subscribes to The Militant, 
which he says is the weekly of the Socialist Party in the United States. It is a copy of the militant that Oswald is shown holding in the photograph taken from this effects at Irving. At that time, he asked me whether I was an FBI agent, and I said that I was not, that I was a member of the Secret Service. He said when he was standing in front of the textbook building and about to leave it, a young crew-cut man rushed up to him and said he was from the Secret Service, showed a book of identification, and asked him where the phone was. Oswald said he pointed toward the payphone in the building and that he saw the man actually go to the phone before he left. I asked Oswald whether, as a Marxist, he believed that religion was an opiate of the people, and he said very definitely so, and that all organized religions tend to become monopolistic and are the causes of a great deal of class warfare. I asked him whether he considered the Catholic Church to be an enemy of the communist philosophy, and he said, well, there was no Catholicism in Russia, that the closest to it is the Orthodox churches, but he said he would not further attempt to have him say anything which would be constructed as being anti-religious or anti-Catholic. Captain Fritz displayed an ENCO street map of Dallas, which had been found among Oswald's effects at the rooming house. Oswald was asked whether the map was his and whether he had put some marks on it. He said it was his and remarked, my God, don't tell me there's a mark near where this thing happened. The mark was pointed out to him and he said, what about the other marks on the map? I put a number of marks on it. I was looking for work and marked the places where I went for jobs or where I heard there were jobs. Since it was obvious to Captain Fritz that Oswald was not going to be cooperative, he terminated the interview at that time. I approached Oswald then and, out of the hearing of the others, except perhaps Captain Fritz's men, that as a Secret Service agent, we were anxious to talk with him as soon as he had secured counsel, that we were responsible for the safety of the president, that the Dallas police had charged him with the assassination of the president, but that he had denied it. We were therefore very anxious to talk to him to make certain that the correct story was developing as it related to the assassination. He said that he would be glad to discuss this proposition with his attorney and that after he talked to one, we could either discuss it with him or discuss it with his attorney, if the attorney thought it was the wise thing to do, but that at the present time, he had nothing more to say to me. Oswald was then handed some different clothing to put on. The clothing included a sweater. Captain Fritz made a number of telephone calls to ascertain whether the preparations he had placed into effect for transferring the prisoner to the county jail were ready, and upon being so advised, Captain Fritz and members of the Detective Bureau escorted Oswald from the homicide office on the third floor to the basement where Oswald was shot by Jack Ruby. On the completion of the interview, Special Agent in Charge Sorrells and I proceeded to the office of the Chief of Police on the third floor and were discussing the interview when we heard that Oswald had been shot. We both ran down the steps to the basement. I arrived in the anteroom where they had dragged Oswald. Special Agent in Charge Sorrells located and interviewed Ruby. Someone was bending over Oswald with a stethoscope, and he appeared to be unconscious in very serious condition at that time. 
I asked Captain Fritz what had happened, and he said Oswald had been shot by one Jack Rubio, whom the police know as a tavern operator. Shortly thereafter, a stretcher arrived, and I accompanied the stretcher to the ambulance, which had been hastily backed into the garage. I observed that during the transfer that Oswald was unconscious. When the ambulance drove away from the building, I attempted to board a cruiser that apparently was going to follow the ambulance, but I was unable to get into the car before it pulled away. Special Agents Warner and Patterson had heard of the shooting on their radio. They proceeded to Parkland Hospital, where Oswald was being taken, and arrived very shortly after Oswald had arrived at the emergency entrance and was being taken into the emergency treatment room. One or the other of these agents was in close proximity to Oswald while he was being treated. When I arrived at the hospital, I rode up on the elevator with Dr. Shaw, who had looked at Oswald as he had come in and was being recalled to the operating room where Oswald had been taken. While Oswald was in the operating room, no one other than the medical personnel was present, but a Dallas policeman who had accompanied Oswald in the ambulance was standing in the doorway of the operating room in operating room scrub clothes. No other investigating personnel were in the vicinity. In the immediate vicinity of the detective was Special Agent Warner. Oswald made no statements from the time he was shot until the time of his death. He was unconscious during the ambulance run to the hospital, which I verified through Detective Dougherty, who accompanied him. He did not regain consciousness at any time during the treatment until he died. At the time of his death, myself, Detective Dougherty, and Colonel Garrison of the Texas State Police were on the first floor of the hospital arranging a security room in which to take Oswald in the event he survived in the operating room treatment. It was never necessary to use this room, and upon learning of his death, I proceeded to the morgue to arrange for his family to view the body. When the family heard of the death, they were in the process of being interviewed by Special Agents Kunkel and Howard and requested to be brought to the hospital. Oswald's brother, Robert, who had also come to the hospital, was being interviewed by Special Agent Hallett. Before the post-mortem was performed, Oswald's family, with the exception of Robert, viewed the body. The family was accompanied during the viewing by the hospital chaplain. After making arrangements through the chaplain and another clergyman for the burial of the body, the family was returned to a secluded spot under the protection of Special Agents Kunkel and Howard and the Irving, Texas Police. Precautions were taken to ensure their safety in view of the excitement caused by the killing of Oswald. Special Agents Howard and Kunkel did an excellent job in handling the security of this family detail and ensuring their safety. I was called by Special Agent in Charge Bauk, who advised me that the President and the Attorney General were concerned about the safety of this family and instructed that all precautions should be taken to ensure that no harm befell them. Special Agent in Charge Bauk was advised that the family was presently under our protection. We would continue providing protection until further notice. Later that day, I was contacted by S.A. Robertson of the FBI, who asked whether we had someone with the family. He was assured that we had. He requested to be advised where the family had been taken, since their ultimate destination as unknown to me at the time. I assured him when I learned of their whereabouts, I would relay it to him.
He said that they received instructions from the Attorney General and President Johnson that precautions should be taken to ensure the family's safety. At 11 p.m. Sunday, November 24th, I was advised of the location of the family and immediately notified Robertson and inquired whether they now wished to take over their protection. He said no. They had no such instructions. They merely wished to be assured that someone was looking out for their safety. I assured them that adequate protection was being provided and that they were available for interviews by the FBI. He stated that they did not wish to interview the family at this time, that they merely wanted to make sure they were in safe hands. All right, now we're going to pivot to the report of the U.S. Postal Inspector H.D. Holmes. This is an informal memorandum furnished by Postal Inspector H.D. Holmes, Dallas, Texas, of an interview he took part in with Lee H. Oswald on Sunday morning, November 24, 1963, between the approximate hours of 9.25 a.m. to 11.10 a.m. Those present, in addition to Inspector Holmes, were Captain Will Fritz of the Dallas Police, Forrest Sorrells, local agent in charge of the Secret Service, and Thomas J. Kelly, Inspector, Secret Service. In addition, there were three detectives who were apparently assigned to guarding Oswald as none of them took part in the interrogation. Oswald at no time appeared confused or in doubt as to whether or not he should answer a question. On the contrary, he was quite alert and showed no hesitancy in answering those questions which he wanted to answer and was quite skillful in parrying those questions which he did not want to answer. I got the impression that he had disciplined his mind and reflexes to a state where I personally doubted if he would ever have confessed. He denied emphatically having taken part in or having had any knowledge of the shooting of the policeman Tippett or of the president, stating that so far as he is concerned, the reason he was in custody was because he popped a policeman in the nose in a theater on Jefferson Avenue. P.O. Boxes he was questioned separately about the three boxes he had rented, and in each instance, his answers were quick, direct, and accurate as reflected on the box rental applications. He stated without prompting that he had rented box 2915 at the main post office for several months prior to his going to New Orleans, that this box was rented in his own name, Lee H. Oswell, and that he had taken out two keys to the box, and that when he had closed the box, he directed that his mail be forwarded to him at his street address in New Orleans. He stated that no one received mail in this box other than himself, nor did he receive any mail under any other name than his own true name, that no one had access to the box other than himself, nor did he permit anyone else to use this box. He stated it was possible that, on rare occasions, he may have handed one of the keys to his wife to go get his mail, but certainly nobody else. He denied emphatically that he had ever ordered a rifle under his name or any other name, nor permitted anyone else to order a rifle to be received in this box. Further, he denied that he had ever ordered any rifle by mail order or bought any money order for the purpose of paying for such a rifle. In fact, he claimed he owned no rifle and he had not practiced or shot a rifle other than possibly a 22 small bore rifle since his days with the Marine Corps. He stated that, how could I afford to order a rifle on my salary of $1.25 an hour when I can't hardly feed myself on what I make? 
When asked if he had had a post office box in New Orleans, he stated that he did, for the reason that he subscribed to several publications, at least two of which were published in Russia, one being the hometown paper published in Minsk, where he met and married his wife, and that he moved around so much that it was more practical to simply rent post office boxes and have his mail forwarded from one box to the next, rather than going through the process of furnishing change of addresses to the publishers. When asked if he permitted anyone other than himself to get mail in box 30061 at New Orleans, he stated that he did not. It will be recalled that on this box rent application, he showed that both Marina Oswald and A.J. Heidel were listed under the caption, Persons Entitled to Receive Mail Through This Box. After denying that anyone else was permitted to get mail in the box, he was reminded that this application showed the name Marina Oswald as being entitled to receive mail in the box, and he replied, well, so what? She is my wife, and I see nothing wrong with that, and it could very well be that I did place her name on the application. He was then reminded that the application also showed the name A.J. Heidel, was also entitled to receive mail in the box, at which he simply shrugged his shoulders and stated, I don't recall anything about that. He stated that when he came back to Dallas and after he had gone to work for the Texas School Book Depository, he had rented a box at the nearby Terminal Annex Postal Station, this being box 6225, and that this box was also rented in his name, Lee H. Oswald. He stated that he had only checked out one key for this box, which information was found to be accurate. And this key was found on his person at the time of his arrest. He professed not to recall the fact that he showed on the box rental application under name of Corporation Fair Play for Cuba and American Civil Liberties Union. He simply shrugged and said that he didn't recall showing them. When asked if he paid the box rental fee or did the organizations pay it, he stated that he paid it. In answer to another question, he also stated that no one had any knowledge that he had this box other than himself. With respect to American Civil Liberties Union membership, he was a little evasive, stating something to the effect that he had made some effort to join, but it was never made clear whether he had been accepted. He stated that he first became interested in the Fair Play for Cuba committee after he went to New Orleans, and it started out as being a group of individuals who, like him, thought and had like political opinions. They did decide to organize, and did organize after a fashion, but denied that they had any president or any elected officers. He stated that he himself could probably be considered the secretary since he wrote some letters on their behalf and attempted to collect dues, which, if I recall, were $1 a month. He also stated that there was a Fair Play for Cuba committee in New York, which was better organized. He denied that he was sent to Dallas for the purpose of organizing such a cell in Dallas. When asked if he was a communist, he stated emphatically not, that he was a Marxist. Someone asked what the difference was, and he stated that a communist is a Lenin Marxist, that he himself was a pure Marxist, 
And when someone asked the difference, he stated that it was a long story. And if they didn't know, it would take too long to tell them. He stated further that he had read about everything written by or about Karl Marx. When asked as to his religion, he stated that Karl Marx was his religion. And in response to further questioning, he stated that some people may find the Bible interesting reading, but it was not for him, stating further that even as a philosophy, there was not much to the Bible. Marine Corps Service Captain Fritz made some mention of his dishonorable discharge from the Marine Corps, at which point he bristled noticeably, stating that he had been discharged with an honorable discharge and that this was later changed due to his having attempted to denounce his American citizenship while he was living in Russia. He stated further that since his change of citizenship did not come to pass, he had written a letter to Mr. Conley, then Secretary of the Navy, and after considerable delay, received a very respectful reply, wherein Conley stated he had resigned to run for governor of Texas and that his letter was being referred to the new secretary, a Mr. Cork Kurth, or something like that. He showed no particular animosity toward Conley while discussing this feature. Captain Fritz then advised him that among his effects in his room, there was found a map of the city of Dallas that had some marks on it and asked him to explain this map. Oswald said he presumed he had reference to an old city map, which he had made some X's denoting location of firms that had advertised job vacancies. He stated that he had no transportation and either walked or rode a bus, and that as he was constantly looking for work, in fact, had registered for employment at the Texas Employment Bureau, and that as he would receive leads either from newspaper ads or from the Bureau or from neighbors, he would chart these places on the map to save time in his traveling. He said to the best of his recollection, most of them were out industrial presumably meaning Industrial Boulevard. When asked as to why the X at the location of the Texas School Book Depository at Elm in Houston, he stated that, well, I interviewed there for a job. In fact, got the job, therefore the X. When asked as to how he learned about his vacancy, he stated that, oh, it was uh, general information in the neighborhood. I don't recall just who told me about it, but I learned it from people in Mrs. Payne's neighborhood and that all the people around there were looking out for possible employment for him. As to an inquiry as to why he went to visit his wife on Thursday night, November 21st, whereas he normally visited her over the weekend, he stated that on this particular weekend, he had learned that his wife and Mrs. Payne were giving a party for the children and that they were having a house full of neighborhood children and that he just didn't want to be around at such time. Therefore, he made his weekly visit on Thursday night. When asked if he didn't bring a sack with him the next morning to work, he stated that he did. And when asked as to the contents of the sack, he stated that it contained his lunch. Then, when asked as to the size or shape of the sack, he said, oh, I don't recall. It may have been a small sack or a large sack. You don't always find one that just fits your sandwiches. When asked as to where he placed the sack when he got into the car, he said in his lap or possibly the front seat beside him. 
as he always did because he didn't want it to get crushed. He denied that he placed any package in the back seat. When advised that the driver stated that he had brought out a long parcel and placed it in the back seat, he stated, oh, he must be mistaken or else thinking about some other time when he picked me up. When asked as to his whereabouts at the time of the shooting, he stated that when lunchtime came and he didn't say which floor he was on, he said one of the Negro employees invited him to eat lunch with him and he stated, you go on down and send the elevator back up and I will join you in a few minutes. Before he could finish whatever he was doing, he stated the commotion surrounding the assassination took place and when he went downstairs, a policeman questioned him as to his identification and his boss stated that he is one of our employees, whereupon the policeman had him step aside momentarily. Following this, he simply walked out the front door of the building. I don't recall that anyone asked why he left or where or how he went. I just presume that this had been covered in an earlier questioning. Captain Fritz asked him if he knew anyone by the name of A.J. Heidel, and he denied that he did. When asked if he had ever used this name as an alias, he also made a denial. In fact, he stated that he had never used the name, didn't know anyone by this name, and never had heard of the name before. Captain Fritz then asked him about the ID card he had in his pocket bearing such a name, and he flared up and stated, I've told you all I'm going to about that card. You took notes, just read them for yourself if you want to refresh your memory. He told Captain Fritz that you have the card. Now you know as much about it as I do. About 11 o'clock a.m. or a few minutes thereafter, someone handed through the door several hangers on which there were some trousers, shirts, and a couple of sweaters. When asked if he wanted to change any of his clothes before being transferred to the county jail, he said, just give me one of these sweaters. He didn't like the one they handed him and insisted on putting on a black slip-over sweater that had some jagged holes in it near the front of the right shoulder. One cuff was released while he slipped this over the head, following which he was again cuffed. During this change of clothing, Chief of Police Curry came into the room and discussed something in an inaudible undertone with Captain Fritz, apparently for the purpose of not letting Oswald hear what was being said. I have no idea what this conversation was, but just presume they were discussing the transfer of the prisoner. I did not go downstairs to witness the further transfer of the prisoner. Well, there you have it. 12 hours of interrogation all summed up in these reports that you've just heard pretty much verbatim. That's it. That's the only known testament of what was said and what was said back from the man who had been charged with killing the president of the United States, the leader of the free world. In that short 48-hour period, besides the moments he had in the hallways and the one pseudo-press conference, most of those moments actually caught with sound and video. This was the remainder of recorded history. 12 hours of interrogation, and that's all we have. 
This was perhaps one of the most critical interrogations in the history of the United States. And no one bothered to go get a tape recorder or film it, or at least go get a stenographer. They were basically right there at the courthouse. A stenographer was surely less than a stone's throw away. Why didn't they do this so that every word could be captured? All we have is the sanitized version. Isn't that at least poetic consistency with the rest of this story surrounding the assassination? Well, like we said before, maybe there was something in the middle of those discussions that was too sensitive to write down. And maybe in order to avoid that, they used this technique. And I get it. When you start recording what a suspect says, they start to clam up. And old Captain Fritz, I imagine he realized that over the years. And that's the reason he never used that kind of technique anyway. Despite all of that, there was some real gems in the middle of that discussion. And I realize it was tedious. The last two episodes have been almost 50 minutes long. And that's a lot of time to invest, especially when they're redundant in nature, which is what this was. But I will tell you that listening to the different renditions of the same conversation tells you a lot. It tells you a lot about people's perceptions tells you a lot about what even jurors might think. These were trained ears, all of them. As a member of the jury, you now have a very valuable piece of evidence. You have just heard the only words that the suspect will speak about the crime. I can't wait to compare notes with you. Before we leave today, remember, in the JFK assassination case, facts are always stranger than fiction. That's why I'd like to share a little snippet with you. This is an interesting little story to end this episode. Dr. Charles Crenshaw was a third-year surgical resident at Parkland Hospital, and he was on the trauma team, the team that took care of JFK that Friday afternoon. As luck would have it, he was on duty again Sunday morning and was part of the trauma team that took care of Lee Harvey Oswald. Let's listen to this clip of Dr. Crenshaw describing something that happened right at the moment that they were attending to Oswald. Dr. Crenshaw's role in history was not over. Just two days later, another victim of the madness that gripped Dallas was wheeled through this hospital emergency entrance. Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused presidential assassin, was shot. And though mortally wounded, he too was brought here. Inside, there was another urgent rush of medics to the trauma room. Among them, again, the young Dr. Crenshaw. As the team was around him at the table, working, trying to save his life, you were called away. What was that about? The nurse came and tapped me on the shoulder and asked if I would take the phone call. And I picked up the phone, and it was like thunder, like God was talking. He said, this is the president, Lyndon B. Johnson. I said, yes, sir. And he said, how is the accused assassin doing? I said, well, he's critical, but right now he is holding his own. He then said, I want you to take a message to the operating surgeon and have a deathbed statement from Oswald. Oswald died on the table without saying a word. 
Thank you for listening to episode 25 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 